Ladies and gentlemen, it is that time once again, broadcasting almost live from deep beneath an old crazy eddies. It's Tavern Voices. I'm your host, Kevin King. And with me, as always, is our other host and my non-racist fraternity brother, Tyler Crawley. (laughs) How goes it? That's an important distinction to make nowadays. So I'm glad that you made it because you you got to put that qualifier on there. We were the right on campus fraternity of two, and there are absolutely no incriminating photos. You could throw, we had a producer for a while. Maybe you could throw him on there. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, we had several. We had had an entourage at that point. That's true. That's true. That's right. We were the founders. We were the founders of the ROC frat. So I I, I agree with that. Uh, But I'm glad you brought up the racist fraternities because there's probably no story that would be harder to believe if we weren't living it in real time uh, than what is going on right now with Virginia's government. So real quick, I just want to remind everyone that Virginia for a long time was a red state. And in the last couple of years, they've been decimated. The, the Virginia GOP has been decimated. They put up bad candidates. Uh, it's just it, the party is a, is a shell of its former shell uh, self. And the Democrats have emerged and have turned it into a purple, if not maybe blue state. And things have gone you think things are going well for Democrats and they've gone from, you know, pretty darn good to horrible as last week it was reported that Ralph Northam, of course, uh, was caught wearing the blackface uh, in a photo. He says that wasn't his that wasn't him in the photo, but he did wear blackface another time. Uh, then the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, it turned out, uh, who is, looked like a perfect replacement for, of course, Ralph Northam He's a young black um, politician who is like the future of the party. And it turns out that he had a encounter with a female at the DNC. And now she's claiming that it was sexual assault. And then the third in line is Mark Herring, who's the attorney general. And now he has come out and said that he too has worn blackface in the past. And so, Kevin, I only have two questions for you. One, have you ever worn blackface? And two, if not, would you like to be the governor of Virginia? Um, I'm not sure the order of your questions, if those were the yes or no. No, I have never worn blackface. And yes, I would love to be governor of Virginia. I'm sure it was a little bit of a pay bump from, from where I'm at. And you left out a crucial key point in the Northam photo. He is wearing blackface supposedly next to a person in a Klan outfit. Yeah, right? oh, that, gotta, that's true. That's true. I, I did. I did forget to mention that. You've got to paint the full, full picture well, because on this. the argument is, is that he's the guy in the Klan outfit, and that's why he was so confident saying he wasn't the guy with blackface, because you can't do facial recognition on a Klan mask. And so that was that was one of the arguments. He's like, of course, that's not me in blackface. I'm the guy in the Klan outfit. I think, I think like he's it's very uh, smart the way he words things because he keeps saying I'm not the guy in blackface. <laughs> but I don't know if he's ever said I'm not the Klan guy. <laughs> um, but I think he has said that that's that's I don't know where that picture came from, which is kind of funny that it just ended up on his Facebook or uh, yearbook page. Well, I have to ask, how much money would you have chipped in in a GoFundMe to have seen him moonwalk at that press conference? Oh, I would have. I'd do my bank account. I mean, that when I, I, I yeah. was watching it and he turned to look and I said, oh, my God, let this happen. And then his wife, you know, Claire Underwood <laughs> turned to him and, and totally cock blocked the whole situation and ended up. Yeah, it didn't happen. And I was so mad. I, I'm never going to forgive that woman for ruining what probably would have been the meme of 2019. I mean, what would ever top that? Nothing. 
Nothing would ever that, stop that. That's exactly what he, sh- he could have used in his reelection video, right? <laughs> I, I've never been to the moon, but I can moonwalk. <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> we that went from, uh, from California's Governor Moonbeam to now Governor Moonwalk. <laughs> Did you just come up with that or, or I, did you plan I actually, that? No, I really, that was on the spot. <laughs> that was good. That was very good. I, I don't think I could have come up with that. Uh, so I props to you. But yeah, no, this is like the most amazing story. And just so everyone knows, the fourth in line to be governor is the equivalent of the Speaker of the House. I'm not sure that's his exact title, but that's precisely what he is. And he's a Republican. And so they could go through all three members of the executive branch, I guess. And then they got to go to the General Assembly and it's a Republican. And so the Democrats are just beside themselves. I mean, do you see that photo of, I mean, it, 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 you, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. It's this woman. She's a member of the Black Caucus uh, in Virginia. And there's all this press and everyone's around her. And she's like up against the car, like crying. Like, I mean, she's just, I mean, it's, it, it's just, I mean, it's horrific. What is happening in Virginia? The Democrats went from, I mean, they're planning what they're going to be doing for the next 30 years to now they might lose the governor's mansion in a week. It's, if someone would have wrote this in a book, I, it never, no one would have bought it. I mean, there's no way anyone would have believed it. No, no, you can't. Well, yet at the same time, I did see a uh, meme floating around the internet that um, was basically saying, you know, here's the look on people's faces who actually understand history that they found pictures of Democrats um, in racist and uh, situations and wearing a Klan outfit, right? Because as Republicans, we try yeah. to talk about that over and over. And the narrative is always, well, no, it changed. That party changed. No, your modern Democrats are still the same Democrats that that have been around, that have been in this party. And until they start to get a hold of, of actual history, they're going to continue to be completely surprised by these sort of revelations. And Tyler, I'm sure you saw this, but I wanted to bring this up as well, that uh, Colin Campbell at the uh, News and Observer has now found photos from UNC's yearbook of fraternities in similar blackface type situations. And I mean, where's this been for, for decades? Oh, I had no, like this isn't part of popular culture. Did you see where's this coming from? Yes, they were awful. I mean, it was two guys wearing makeshift clan outfits, throwing a rope over a chandelier and hanging a, a white dude in blackface. I mean, that was like that. I mean, somehow somebody found a picture worse than the Ralph Northam one and they posted it. But here's what I don't like. Here's what I don't like about this story. Some Republicans are trying to go, oh, that yearbook was the same year that that uh, Roy Cooper was there. And I'm like, listen, I don't like Roy Cooper at all. <laughs> like, I don't I don't think I like him personally. Never met him, but I just you know, I don't like him. He seems kind of like a jerk. But unless he was involved in the face, I mean, the yearbook, unless he was involved in one of the frats or what, then it's not you can't. Be, he was at the school at the same time. Like that is going to be that is a horrible argument. And I've already seen some stupid Republicans uh, or so-called Republicans trying to make this argument, like to go after Cooper. And it's like, come on. <laughs> I mean, now if he's connected to the fraternity or anything else, it's a different story. But otherwise, don't try and make, that's a stupid argument. I don't like it. No, I agree. You can't, and that's what we've got that now though, is that anytime one person does something wrong on either side, you've just, you, you've got to lump everybody into it. Yeah. Right. You know, every, every Republican is Roy Moore and every, um, you know, every every Democrat is now Northam, although a lot of them were. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that is very true. 
All right. Well, speaking of lumping everyone together, we've we've got to step back in to catch up on our favorite our favorite sitcom at this point, the AOC. And we've got to check in on our main characters because on this week's episode of the AOC, we are just going to throw math completely out the window. I mean, up until this point, it has been a general lack of basic <laughs> lack of understanding of basic economics, but now it's just getting worse. A lot worse, in fact. There was an article that came out today from Politico that lays out the new progressive theory that is backed by the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elizabeth Warren, the great Bernie Sanders, so on and so forth. Apparently, since their pie-in-the-sky policies have now been so obviously proven financially impossible, they have now decided to just destroy the idea of financial possibility altogether. You see, since governments just print money, they believe there is no such thing as deficit spending. We don't need revenue to offset costs. We just print whatever we want to. Tyler, if we are now to the point where money and deficits are imaginary, will we also see these socialists on the left embracing Trump's deficit tax cuts? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you something. What absolutely terrifies me about AOC is that she is more economically illiterate than Donald Trump. And the reason that scares me is one of the reasons that he, I believe, kind of won the GOP primary and then eventually the White House is because of his economic illiteracy. Because when you're economically illiterate, you can make arguments that make no sense, um, but they sound great. Like, we're going to cut taxes, increase spending, and we're not going to touch entitlement programs, but don't worry because the econ- the economy is going to grow so much, everything's going to pay for itself, and everyone goes, "Yay! That sounds awesome!" Everybody gets what they want. You know, every people that pay taxes get tax cuts. People that are collecting entitlement, they get to keep that, uh, and we spend more money with the government. It's a win win for everyone. The problem is it doesn't make any sense because tax cuts never pay for themselves, uh, at least not at this point. And unless you cut spending, then they can't pay for themselves. But um, we didn't do that. We actually increased spending. Uh, you have to touch entitlements, so we're going to go bankrupt. And uh, like I said, you just can't keep uh, – we're borrowing a trillion dollars in a supposedly amazing economy. But guess what? People love, love to hear that. They don't want to hear someone that goes, listen, we got to cut entitlements. We got to cut government spending. We're going to have to raise your taxes. We're going to have to add new taxes. Nobody wants to hear that. And so the, anyone that makes that sort of adult argument loses – And so what worries me is that her illiteracy when it comes to anything economics is actually going to endear her to many voters and Democrats and, you know, maybe not her, but someone else that latches onto that same idea could run for president and end up winning and get us an even worse situation because most people don't know anything about economics. They don't care about the debt. They don't care about any of these things. And all of this (laughs) needs to be taken care of. But it's so it's people don't want to hear that. They want to hear happy everyone win scenarios that don't exist. And so if you can say it, then, you know, and you can say it without lying and you feel good about yourself, then you'll win. And so it worries me that she's that she's so dumb on this issue, because that might actually be uh, a plus for running for office. Yeah, no. And what I find mind blowing about this is that they have now reached a point where, I mean, to their credit, they are unstoppable. If you tell them that something can't be done, they just make up new rules to the game so that it can be done. 
right? Because you're talking about their Green New Deal. You're talking about all of this entitlement spending increases. I mean, you're talking about universal income. Um, I saw one of the bullet points was talking about people who are unable to work or unwilling to work, (laughs) making sure that they are taken care of. They, I mean, how can a congresswoman put in a press statement that we want to support people who are unwilling to work. That is a total disconnect from even the staunchest Southern Democrat policy, right? I mean, this is out there. And I wanted to to comment, uh, read one small paragraph out of this article, because it really goes to show the, the unraveling of their ideas around this. They say, under this theory, and they, they call this, hold on, uh, they call it modern monetary theory. So that that's just Very, very. uh, That's a great name to put it under. Under this theory, if the government did spend enough to stoke inflation, so they're saying government just prints whatever it wants to to spend what it wants to. If, in theory, this causes inflation, which obviously that's not a theoretical statement, it would be counteracted not by raising interest rates as is the is the uh, the system today under the Federal Reserve, but by the president and Congress agreeing to raise taxes to then pull that money back out of the system. So you're talking about this just total inflated monopoly, monopoly, quantitative easing, super high tax rate game. But then what? how how can you play that game indefinitely? Right. I mean, this doesn't even explain how you could pay for these, you know, 30 trillion dollars worth of entitlement spending that they're proposing. Yeah, we can't even pay for what we have now. Uh, I mean, it's insane. I I, I recently talked to uh, David Stockman, who's got a new book out called uh, peak trump in which he i mean it's it's long it's like 600 pages and he and he breaks down just how absolutely screwed we are with regards to the way things are going in the economy and you know we're doing anything to to stop it uh but you know he actually addresses this i mean he actually points out that the idea that the fed has a two percent inflation goal is insane uh the amount of debt that we have in and how anemic our economy is with regards to growth I mean, the reality is, and I know a lot of Republicans don't want to hear this, but this this sort of surge that we've seen because of the Bush tax or the Trump tax cuts is going to be short lived. We're going to go back to two percent growth uh, or less. We're going to get back to what we've been averaging for the last decade or so, and we should actually be, probably be having deflation. Um, be worried about that. And the reality is, is that the Fed is just horrible. I mean, his argument is, is the Fed should 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 be raising interest rates. Uh, we should not have anywhere near the balance sheet that it has. All of these things are just are, are causing havoc, not to mention the entitlements and spending and the tax cuts and not being and borrowing to pay for the tax cuts. I mean, it's just a mess. It's an absolute mess. And I mean, it's, it's, it's hysterical that Donald Trump is borrowing a trillion dollars right now. And they're upset that he's not spending more money. You know, they, they think that if you just tax the rich, you can get all that money and you're going to be able to, to, to pay for all these programs in every single analysis says best case scenario, all the tax cuts that they have. I mean, even if they confiscated all the wealth of the richest billionaires that they hate so much, it would pay for like one year of this program. I mean, it, it's it, it's it, it you, you can't even put it on paper because it doesn't even make sense. Uh, you can't even chart it because there's no chart that would allow that to exist. Um, and like I said, I think that's going to be a plus for them, unfortunately, moving forward. Because the dumber you are, the better you seem to do in politics. I don't know when this happened, or maybe it's always been that way, but it does seem to be happening more often. And speaking of being dumb in politics, let's go back to Roy Cooper for a second, because Roy Cooper decided that he needed to appoint someone to the Human Relations Committee. He does this, you know, that's what the governor does. He appoints people, and 
it's a good thing. He's pointing local people to boards that know about these topics. It's a good thing. But it's not good when you put stupid people on these boards. And one of those stupid people is a woman named Lawana Mayfield out of Charlotte. She's a city council member. And what's so bizarre about all of this, he appoints her to this board. And the outcry not only comes from the Republicans in the Senate, who, of course, have advice and, advice and consent, but the Charlotte Observer editorial board writes an editorial asking Roy Cooper, what the heck is he thinking? I mean, like that's how bad this pick was. And why it was so bad is that she on Twitter has said two things that are almost unbelievable. One, that 9-11 was an inside job, believing that it was a controlled demolition, means that the U.S. government was behind it. And two, that uh, police are homegrown terrorists. And what's weird is it's not like we found this after he appointed her. We knew this for a long time. It was a big story last year. I remember talking about it on my radio show. And for some reason, he decided to appoint her anyway. And the good news in the story is that he rescinded the appointment after the editorial board of the Charlotte Observer criticized him and every Republican in the the, uh, North Carolina Senate. But Kevin, um, what was Roy Cooper thinking? (laughs) What is he ever thinking? <laughs> I mean, I mean this in the, I don't, well, I said, I was going to say, I mean this in the nicest way possible. I don't think there's a nice way to mean this, but man, this guy just isn't firing on all cylinders. I mean, it would be one thing if you had the dream team type, best, well-spoken, highly educated Democrat as your governor, and you have some sort of, of you know, sort of intellectual heft or something at the top. But this, I mean, everything he vetoed got just destroyed with the veto-proof majority in the ha- in the in the legislature. And on top of that, the reasonings he was giving for the vetoes were just really dumb and partisan and bickery sounded. It was it was awful. And so when you see him do something like this, I mean, it doesn't surprise me at this point. And we did talk about uh, Councilwoman Mayfield on this podcast, I do believe, when she said some stupid things. I know she called Trump Hitler and <laughs> um, was very unsupportive of the Charlotte Police Department. And um, what what was it uh, about 9-11? I think you just mentioned it. That Didn't she say it was an inside job or something? Yeah, she said it was a controlled demolition. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly she's a little off her rocker. Um, so, but at this point, I don't know if, if our governor is just kind of weakened at Bernie's, somebody just keeps sliding paper in front of him. He's signing it <laughs> or, or what, but there just doesn't seem to be any sort of leadership or, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know what to, what to describe it, but yeah, I mean, I just, I don't see a plan at the top and that's not going to do the party well when, um, you know, when 2020 rolls around, but we'll see if the GOP is going to get it together either, which is something I'm not convinced of at this point. Uh, so I, th- I think that's what will be interesting is to see w- which party comes through as the one that has their crap together starting later this year. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, you definitely have to do that. I mean, it, to me, what's, it's, I mean, this is what's happening nationally. I mean, there's no way Donald Trump should win re-election. His approval numbers are at 41%. Unless the Democrats run on a Green New Deal that I believe calls for uh, uh, tearing down and rebuilding every building in the United States is going to be rebuilt in her plan. They're going to kill cows because they fart. Uh, They're going to get rid of airline travel, only high speed rail, which should be difficult for Hawaii and Alaska. It's just a bunch of other stupid ideas. 
and they run on partial birth abortion. I mean, it's like you guys are nuts. Like you're going to put Donald Trump in the White House. I mean, because, yeah, he has 41 percent approval numbers, but you guys have 35 or, or 30 or 20. I mean, it, it's insane. And the same thing in North Carolina. It's it's sort of like the Republicans do some dumb things. And so, OK, now I guess they're going to lose some elections. But if the Democrats do dumber things. Then the Republicans win by default. I mean, it's so weird how politics has now become like it's it's like whoever's the least dumb and makes the, the least dumb mistake before the election wins. I mean, that's not how it's supposed to happen. You're supposed to be the best candidate. And I'm not even talking like a lesser of two evils. I'm talking less a lesser of two dumbs. <laughs> like it's I mean, and Roy Cooper has a great approval number. And all he has to do is just not do stupid stuff. Like, I mean, he can literally just keep doing what he's doing, which is nothing. And he'll just get reap the benefits of the good economy and everyone will attribute all the good things the General Assembly is doing to him. So just don't do anything. And he can't. He, he still appoints people like Lawana Mayfield to these committees and, and gets all these negative uh, headlines. It's just it's it's mind boggling um, how, how he's going to like it's just makes these stupid mistakes. Well, I mean, look at where we've come. And I mean, I know people always say, well, back in the day, things were way better than they are now. Maybe they weren't. But um, it it seemed like for a while there was really a battle of ideas. There was a, um, you know, sort of this push of the, the, the William Buckley sort of intellectual, like, let's win on how conservatism makes sense and how it actually works and proving how socialism fails. And now with just the media being as awful as it is, um, the both parties being as awful as it is, every candidate seems to just be a total embarrassment for both parties. Um, I, I feel like there is no intellectualism or battle of ideas. It's just my team versus your team, and they just keep throwing people into the ring until someone gets knocked out. I mean, we've been reduced to a giant MMA fight in politics. That's all it is now. Well, I mean, that's exactly I mean, that, that that actually is exactly what it is. I mean, if you ask people why they voted for Trump, the argument is he fights. He fights. It's not like he fights for good stuff. He just fights like that's enough. Um, as long as he's fighting and as long as, you know, quote unquote, he's winning. That's it. That's all that matters. And that's you know, and as long as and, and that's also why there, no compromises happen in Washington, because a compromise means both sides win, both sides lose. But no one sees it that way because so many people in politics are skeptical or cynical, I should say, and they look at everything as the glass is half empty. And so they don't see, oh, everyone wins. They see everyone loses and we lost. We're losers because we gave in. You know, we don't want to be like the Jeb Bushes who compromise or the Rubios that compromise. We want to be like Trump who doesn't give an inch and he fights. doesn't matter if he doesn't get anything done. It doesn't matter if he actually ends up throwing great deals in the garbage can that would be like an 80% win for us. We don't even want to give 20%. And that's, that's what Reagan did, right? You know, Reagan's famously said, I'd rather have, you know, was he, did he say 80% of the loaf um, than no loaf at all? And uh, I think he actually said 20% or something like that. Um, but we, you know, like the wall deal. I mean, there was a point where Donald Trump could have gotten his wall funding in, in its entirety. And he threw it in the garbage because of some stupid uh, legal Im- or legal immigration quotas that he wanted changed. And but that was great because he fought. He fought. But nothing's happened. We're not we haven't built one inch of wall <laughs> since he took office, but he fights and it's it's stupid. And I, like I said, then going back to my earlier comments, I think that the the dumber people are and the, and the least they know about policy the better off they're going to do in elections. You know, we've, we have a mutual friend who's, who's talked to us about the things, uh, you know, he works on professional and national campaigns 
and points out all the time these people run for office having no idea how Washington works. They get up there and they either leave, get frustrated or turn into a crazy person. And that's really it. Or they lie or they lie to the constituents and go, we would have got that done if it wasn't for this. Um, but it's a problem. And, the, and, and, and so what's happening is we're rewarding people that make promises that can't be kept. Uh, and, and, is, and, and you can never lose. You can, Trump never loses, right? It's as long as he fights, you know, it's the other, it's, it's the Mitch McConnell's fault. It's Paul Ryan's fault. It's Nancy Pelosi's fault. It's never Trump's fault. And so you, you continue to keep your base, but it's it's a problem because nothing's getting done. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's why my favorite gif in the uh, 2016 election was from Gladiator when Russell Crowe was going, are, are you not entertained? Yeah. Right. Because that's what it boiled down. We were just Romans in the middle of the Coliseum with people on either side cheering for for just destruction and brutality in the electoral process. And, and that's what we're getting. And that's what people are cheering for. So, you know, Trump's just giving the people what they're asking for. They, he, <laughs> they're getting the full price of their admission. I mean, uh, campaign donations. So you were talking about um, dumb people. And I wonder, um, you know, kind of how you quantify that. And that, that brings us to our last story of the podcast here. And so what happened is back last fall, a report came out that North Carolina teachers were failing their math tests at an alarming rate. This week, the Department of Public Instruction issued an explanation that things actually weren't as bad as the report seemed. See, what had happened was DPI switched from Praxis for teacher licensure to Pearson and that the new test was much harder. Oh, well, in that case, I feel so much better about that. Thanks for clearing that up. We should definitely switch back to the easier test just to make things simple. There was one nugget in this News and Observer article, though, as Tom Tomberlin from DPI stated, quote, what the school districts are learning in a very real way is that the licensure exam does not predict who's going to be a good teacher and who's not, end quote. Well, you don't say. Tyler, which is it? Are our teachers good educators because they actually did pass the test or are the tests worthless and education is just fine the way it is? <laughs> Sounds like a trick. Trick question. Yeah, the, it's the, a ruse. the uh, education debate about testing, whether it's testing the students, testing the teachers, it, it, it's I, I get it. I mean, right, because I trying to test what someone knows is very difficult because what ends up happening is you end up teaching to the test and we don't want that. And it's even true with teachers. I mean, you don't want them just learning like what's on the test. But the problem is, is we all agree that testing is maybe not the best way, but we still, we can't figure out a way as to how to act, to, to determine whether or not either someone's qualified for the classroom or uh, whether or not, you know, a student's qualified for the classroom. And the only way that we can figure it out is you need some sort of testing. And it's if, if someone can figure out a better way, then we'll do that. But the teachers keep arguing just no testing. And we just, I guess, just trust everyone that they're doing a good job. That, of course, is a horrible idea because, I mean, we've seen some school districts in the past that, I mean, I mean, we're seeing what they're doing with the testing, with the cheating they do and students who don't show up for school and mark them there. I mean, can you imagine if there was nothing like how bad things would be. I mean, at least they have to try and cheat. If there was no even no even cheating, I mean, it, it terrifies me to think what would happen. So I think, yeah, we do have to come up with a better way uh, to, to determine who's a good teacher and a better way to turn out who's a good student. 
But until we do, you got to do testing because there's no other way that we're going to be able to to measure it. And <laughs> this idea that we cannot measure it is is crazy. I mean, you couldn't get away with that in any other industry. So we got to measure it. So they got to what they got to do is figure out a better way to measure it. If they do, everyone will be on board. But this this idea that it's either measuring or no measuring, that's that's not even a debate. Exactly. And one of the things they pointed out in this article is that um, they switched the process as well during this over the last several years where it used to be you had to pass the licensure portion to become a teacher. So this sort of weeded people out. What they started doing is allowing people to come out of college and they had a two year window to then pass it. So you had more people coming out and, and then therefore failing the test and not becoming licensed versus having to cross that threshold before you could even become a teacher. So obviously now you've got a, a total other mess. You've got people who have absolutely really no this threshold of entry to become a starting teacher out of right out of college. So you're already letting just anybody in really at that point. Yeah. And then on top of that, you're, you're giving them a couple of years. And so what their argument then is saying, well, over this two-year period, we've got teachers who are doing a good job, but then they can't pass the test. And so they might lose their job because they can't pass the test and we're going to lose good teachers. And to me, it sounds like a circular argument. Well, the other problem that you run into is every profession does this. Teachers are not alone, but they like to put up barriers to their profession for job security purposes. It's why they want to also, you know, allow teachers that have higher degrees to get paid more money. It's like why having a master's doesn't make you a better teacher. Uh, so they like to do these things that you know puts a barrier up. I mean, it's the same reason why all industries do this. It's why hair. It's why I mean, there's there are some rules in North Carolina. I mean, this is a big debate among libertarians, especially, but a lot of free market uh, economists who look at uh, oh, what are they called? Occupational yes, licensing. Occupational licensing that prevents people from getting into the industry. I mean, we're, in North Carolina, I think it, you, you have to do more work to become a hairdresser than to become like a ambulance tech. And it's like, listen, I'm all, listen, I love my hair and I, I get my hair cut at a salon. <laughs> so I, I, I agree. Keep, you know, getting a good haircut is important, but are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> you, you have to do more training to become a hairdresser than to, than to be a medic. I mean, that that's insane. And it, Teaching is no different and teachers like this, but at the same time, once again, it's sort of, okay, fine. But if you want to put a barrier up, then this is the barrier. And so if you don't want the barrier up, then you're going to open this up to competition and you guys might not like that. And so it's this, it's a battle. And I, I think we should get rid of it. I think if you want to be a teacher and you're good at it, I don't think you should have to major in education, pass a test. I mean, a lot, when I was growing up, I, I went to a private school. And, um, you know, they have more lenient regulations. Some of my best teachers weren't like formally trained teachers. And you never know who's going to be a good teacher. You know, I mean, this is true for any profession. And but they like it. They like the barriers. And unfortunately, if you want the barriers, then the people who decide what the barriers are, the, are going to be the ones making them. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what you see. Um Right at the collegiate level, the best professors that I ever had were people who were experienced in that field who just decided to teach because they bring an understanding and a professional experience to the field versus people who have just been taught how to talk and now they teach you. Right. I mean, well, they also have that concept seemed kind of strange. I mean, they, they have experience in the field. So like if you're taking a business class by someone who's a former 
Yeah, like, like I remember one time uh, I had an economics professor who was actually he actually worked on the commodities exchange and was a trader. And he retired and moved to Lynchburg, and I and I had a class with him. Like that guy explaining like how commodities work and how the markets work. I mean, like that guy like lived it, you know. Versus a guy that just learns about business in in textbooks. And same thing with the law. Like having a, a a law professor that actually was a practicing attorney. Like it gives you insight. And I think there are. It is important to have academic, uh, you know, professions. People that only look at it from an academic perspective. That's a, that's a valuable as well. But some of the best professors, as you said, have real world experience in their in their uh, expertise. Yeah, I mean, I think. Perfect example of this. I had a law professor in the public administration program that I took, and he had tons of experience in a very high profile law firm, um, had extensive work. In fact, he consulted so much here once he moved to North Carolina that he helped rewrite a lot of laws that were on the books for 100 years to kind of revamp a lot of property law and how things were done here at the state level. But he could not become an actual licensed attorney in the state of North Carolina because his law school was not one that was viewed as properly accredited to be acceptable to the North Carolina bar. So, I mean, it's insane (laughs) what these, yeah. Oh, it was hilarious. And so you get these strange, I mean, that's what happens when you allow people who, it would be like letting the basketball players write the rules every year, right? Because then they would just make the rules that were suitable to, to the players themselves, not the game. And I think that's what you've been running into. Yeah, well, you need a, 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 you know, a, an impartial third party to kind of step back and say, well, you know, what overall is going on here? But instead, you get educators inside of DPI writing rules for education. And clearly, there's a problem. I can't remember who would always say this, but they would always talk about how there was this mentality in education that everyone says, we've got problems with education. We've got to fix education. But yet, when you talk to any individual educator or principal it was never my school. It's never my classroom. It's always just this, you know, unknown, big, ambient idea of of a failure. But it was never anyone's fault, and that's probably a whole other podcast. But yeah. that's the way I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was funny. I was talking to someone the other day, a friend of mine. And I was joking about how I was just going to take the bar and uh, pass it, and then become a practicing attorney. Because remember, back in the day, you could do that. But nowadays, there's only like three states in the country that still allow that. And I, and, and I didn't realize that. And my friend was you know, joking and said, why would anyone go to law school and spend a hundred thousand dollars if you could just take the bar and become a practice? And I was like, that's a good point. So why does that exist? Probably because law schools lobbied to have that be the thing because <laughs> law schools, they want people going to law school. And if you don't have to go to law school, you can just read a textbook and take the test and pass and become a practicing attorney. People, not everyone, still people would still go to law school. But a lot of people would go that route and it would and, and, you know, it would hurt the profession and law schools. And so that's one of the reasons probably why they do it. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's these, you know, barriers are never are, ne- are never about making it a better profession for the consumer of that product, whatever it may be, or service. It's always about making it better for the producer uh, and government, too. They always benefit as well. Government always, always benefits, except for here. <laughs> On this podcast, That's they don't, true. they kind of get beat up a lot. I, f- I feel bad for them, but you know, they control everything else. So we get our small moment <laughs> in the dark corner of the internet as it's closing time. What else should we talk about, Tyler? I got nothing. 
You got nothing. I mean, when you've talked about 9-11 conspiracy theory <laughs> appointees and blackface and clan outfits in one episode, that's pretty much that's pretty much all you can squeeze in. Yeah, I mean, occupational licensing. Uh, you're right. Blackface, clan outfits, AOC, Donald Trump. I mean, it's we run the gamut. I mean, it's this this is we might you know, this this probably should be the last show we ever do because we'll never ever get to the, that that wide ranging of topics ever again. Yeah, but at the same time, it really gives us something to shoot for. Tyler. That's true. That's true. You know, we set the bar high and now we have to meet that bar every week. This this is the only personal record that I'll be striving for. <laughs> so I'll start training this week and we'll uh, we'll do it again next week. Sounds good to me. All right, man. See ya. See ya.